1: Hello and welcome to new books in South Asian Studies. I'm Yuli Perzel. Today we are going to talk about the book When Crime Pays Money and Muscle in Indian Politics, written by Milan Vaishnav and published by Yale University Press in 2017. When Crime Pays is a fascinating account of how democracy may provide incentives to criminals to enter electoral politics and be voted into power. He proposes to think of politics as a marketplace for criminality where dynamics of supply and demand led to the present situation. In the Indian Parliament today, one-third of the representatives have ongoing criminal proceedings against them. Milan Vaishnav is the director and a senior fellow in the South Asia Programme at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I had the pleasure of talking to Milan about his book. I hope you will enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi Milan, welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm Yuli, one of the hosts on the podcast, and I want to start out by saying that it was a real pleasure reading your book, especially for its style and flow and the little ethnographic vignettes at the beginning of each chapter. I really enjoyed those. So welcome.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And to turn to the contents of the book, uh, I would like to start um, on your very provocative argument where you say that the widespread presence and success of criminal politicians is not a sign of the failure of democracy, it is rather the way Indian democracy works. Can you give us a little context of how you came to make this argument and explain a little bit more about who these criminal politicians
0: are? Sure. So there is a very interesting phenomenon in Indian politics, which I really stumble upon, which is, you know, here you have on the one hand, the world's most populous democracy. It's been a democracy for seven decades now. Uh, You have free and fair elections that are uh, competitive, that are highly contested. So you have all of that on one hand, and on the other hand, such a large number of elected politicians at really every level, national, state, local, who have pending criminal cases against them, often of quite a serious nature. So we're not just talking about things like defamation or unlawful assembly or libel. We're talking about things like murder, attempted murder, causing grievous injury, extortion, and so on. Um, And I was just curious about how do these two things coexist? Because the great thing about democracy we've been taught uh, over the years is that if they're representatives who betray the public trust, Voters can use elections to kind of vote them out at the next election. So what is it about how democracy in India is working that far from getting voted out, these alleged criminal politicians are voted back in, that they're elected and reelected? So that was really the central sort of puzzle that I was trying to wrap my brain around. And, you know, I think the answer is uh, that... Oftentimes, these criminal politicians are able to use their credibility, use their criminality as a sign of their credibility to get things done for their constituents, so to be effective representatives of the people. So rather than viewing them as dictators who rig elections or who trick voters into voting for them or prey on illiterate voters who don't know any better. I actually found the opposite that quite often voters are voting for these individuals because of their criminal uh, reputations rather than in spite of them. So it kind of uh, turns the the traditional notion uh, on its, on its head. And so the framework that I set out is to say, you know, what is it about the way in which democracy works in India that allows these criminal politicians to flourish? Um, and what can we learn about how democracy works and how it doesn't work so that we could think of policy reforms that might be able to fix this uh, imbalance that we see?
1: And yes, thank you. And this is exactly what you managed to do it in a very effective way in your book, but how is it that um so what is it that um is special about Indian democracy which made and what is it about its history that made this situation come about? Um so, I was specifically yeah. oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I am specifically thinking about what you say about the Indian bureaucracy and about its workings.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you know the argument I put forward in the book is you know that it's sometimes helpful to think of elections or politics as a market, um, like we would think of an economic market, in the sense that they both have supply and demand factors at work that kind of make the marketplace right. So politicians have to decide to enter the market, parties have to back them, and then voters have to decide you know what they're going to demand right, and that's where those supply and demand factors meet is kind of where the market is made. And I think there are two fundamental drivers of this in India. So the first is uh, the increasing cost of elections, that elections have become so expensive and political parties are quite weakly organized and they have become uh, kind of thrust into the embrace of wealthy individuals, uh, including criminals who have uh, resources to spend and the incentive to spend them on getting elected, but uh, that explanation is only partial because it ignores the voters. Uh, and I think, in some ways, the most interesting question to ask is: you know, what are what are voters getting out of this bargain? Uh, and I think here you have to kind of understand the evolution of the Indian state that, in a context where. The rule of law is quite weak or quite uneven and government is not always seen as an impartial or effective arbiter of justice, a provider of basic security, a deliverer of basic services that people are looking for heroes, essentially, who will step into the gap and help them navigate uh, the state. So help them get security, help them get justice, help them get uh, the, their basic needs met. And so these criminal politicians portray themselves kind of like Robin Hoods, who are willing to come in and in exchange for political support, uh, help their constituents. And this is all mediated by caste and by ethnicity in India, which, uh, as, as most people would know, is a very salient feature of social and political life. And so the book kind of looks to tr- to sort of how these two factors, the weakness of the rule of law, the weakness of the state, and identity kind of interact in order to create an opportunity to pave a path for criminal politicians to be successful in mainstream politics.
1: I was also wondering um, about the... Um the myth of the ignorant water that you put forward, you're saying that it's not an accident um, that criminal politicians are watered in. But what is it really that um, these politicians have to offer over um, politicians with no criminal cases against them,
0: you know, more so, specifically? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, there, there, there are four different things that, That these criminal politicians offer. So broadly, I write in the book that criminal politicians use their criminality uh, to signal their ability to protect their constituents' interests. Now, what does that protection consist of? There's sort of four separate mechanisms or pathways. The first is to provide uh, a kind of coercive protection, so physical safety that if Somebody in your community, or say from a rival group, poses a threat. Uh, having a strong man in your corner can be a kind of a deterrent. Uh, number two, uh, they can use their influence to intervene in the process of benefits distribution and services. So if you believe your household is entitled to a ration card or some kind of, say, pension or state-provided service, but the local administration is not giving that to you or is asking for a bribe, it might be helpful to have someone who can go down and sort of threaten the administration that, look, if you don't get this done, there are going to be consequences. So it's about welfare. The third is about Uh, Social insurance, right? So life is very uncertain. India has tens, if not hundreds of millions of people who are living kind of above the poverty line, but where they're very vulnerable to economic shocks, right? So there could be a death in the family, there could be a wedding expense, there could be in health emergency where they need someone they can turn to in their hour of need who can kind of tide them over until things stabilize. So that's a kind of social insurance mechanism. And then the fourth, in addition to coercion, uh, social insurance and kind of uh, the delivery of services or welfare is about dispute resolution, right? Um there are, there are so many issues with the way in which the justice system in India works. There are too few judges. Courts are very slow. The apparatus is very creaky. It's very corrupt that if you have a dispute, say, with your neighbor over land, uh, you need someone who can give you speedy justice. And so strong men, because of the credibility, because of their clout, because of their coercive power can essentially substitute for what should be otherwise a state-provided function. So these are the four ways in which protection is offered. And the interests of constituents is not just material. I mean, all of these things are material in some ways, but they're often couched in the language of protecting the status or dignity or honor of a community standing in society at a time when there's been enormous social churn, right? You've had the emancipation of previously disenfranchised groups. You've had a very thin layer of upper castes and elites who have dominated uh, politics, economics and society who find that their hold is eroding. And so they use identity as a way essentially to consolidate their grip on power.
1: Yes, and related to this last point, you make an other very interesting um, argument in the chapter about reserved constituencies. What are these reserved constituencies, and uh, can you explain a bit more about what? how they illuminate your argument and what is it that is special about them
0: sure so you know a big part of the argument is about identity and that you know there are these identity-based divisions in india which are more salient in some places and less salient in others and it's those things are very hard to observe uh, because india has not publicized a caste census since 1931 uh, you know, a census that was carried out under British colonial rule. Uh, so we have very limited information actually on the nature of ethnic and caste uh, identities across India. So one of the indirect uh, tests that I use is, you know, think about reserved constituencies. So under the Indian constitution, a quarter of state and national. Uh, electoral districts are reserved for two disadvantaged groups. One are the scheduled castes or the Dalits, formerly called untouchables. Those are the people kind of the lowest rungs of the caste hierarchy. And then the second are the tribals or the Adivasis, the scheduled tribes who are kind of uh, India's, you know, sort of native population as it were. And what's interesting about these reserved constituencies is in electoral districts where there's reservation you have to belong to one of those groups in order to stand for office now everybody is allowed to vote so if you're an upper caste or a muslim or someone who's not from one of these protected groups you still have your vote but in order to be a candidate you have to come from one of these groups and what i found is that because you're essentially fixing the identity of the candidate he has to be from one group or another uh, The candidate's incentive is not to be the most robust protector of his own group. It's really to kind of cater to the median voter, to the average voter, because if you just went after your group, well, you're competing against a bunch of people from that same group. So you want to diversify. So what that means is the incentive to field a criminal candidate who has a particular advantage or salience when it comes to the ethnicity dimension or the caste dimension simply doesn't hold. So as a result, we see much lower rates of criminality in reserved areas, not because people from those groups are somehow more virtuous or they're better or they're more honest or they're more public spirited, simply because the political incentives don't exist for parties to field criminals because they want to have a candidate who's broadly acceptable to everybody right they don't want to rock the boat and um but there's also
1: another um place where we have seen something that might um, be seen uh, differently in your, in the light of your argument so india has seen the rise of a political party which has come to power based on their strong narrative against corruption how do you see the sweeping election uh, of 2015 and the great win of the Ahmadmi Party in Delhi in light of your findings. Is there any hope in combating widespread criminality in politics?
0: It's a great question. So the Ahmadmi Party is a very new party in the Indian political system, which uh, began in 2012-2013 as an anti-corruption party. Ahmadmi means sort of, you know, the common man uh, in Hindi. And uh, they had tremendous short-term success in capturing uh, the state legislature in the national capital in Delhi, which is a sort of city-state. But they have had very limited success actually projecting their influence outside of this relatively small... Place which is much more educated, where it's much more urban. It's not very representative of India as a whole. Uh, so you know, I think Delhi is a bit of a of an outlier in terms of location. But what's also interesting to note about the op, uh, as it's called, is the more they have become entrenched into power, the more they resemble basically every other political party. So they have had uh, their own fair share of candidates and legislators who have been caught up in alleged criminal activity, who have resorted to the kind of money power, muscle power that I talk about in my book, which I think goes to show that even parties who want to do things differently face a huge uphill battle in actually creating a political movement that does look differently just because the challenges of the Indian landscape are such uh, that it makes it very, very hard. So what are the solutions? Well, you know, I think one has to think about these on multiple fronts. So, If you go back to the market analogy and say, you know, there's a marketplace for criminal politicians, how do we deal with the supply? How do we deal with the demand? On the supply side, you know, one reason parties are drawn to criminal politicians is because of their money. So parties value muscle or serious criminality because money comes along with it. So India's political campaign finance system is badly flawed. There is no transparency around political contributions. There is very little detail uh, on uh, political parties and their accounts. That's kind of audited and independent. There is uh, the Election Commission of India, which manages elections in some ways is extremely powerful, but has one arm tied behind its back when it comes to fighting campaign finance because the authorities that it has at its disposal are very old and in some cases go back to the kind of independence movement. So I think there are a number of things you could do to try to clean up money in politics that would help reduce the reliance uh, on criminals that parties currently demonstrate. But I think the trickier and the longer term challenge is really to deal with the demand side, which is if politicians are actually – sorry, if voters actually are choosing politicians who have criminal reputations because they find that they are able to provide, quote unquote, better governance or some semblance of governance, that means that you have to really – build or rebuild the state from the ground up, you know, you have to the kind of we think about the kind of sovereign functions of states of taxing and spending and security and justice. These are things that the Indian state does not do very well uh, across the board. There are pockets of efficiency and then there are vast swaths where the state either is just simply not present or is only minimally present. And that, I think, is really the challenge for policymakers going forward: is to both uh, build up the muscle of the state. Uh, India has a relatively undermanned state. I think most people don't realize that. Of all of the G20 major economies, it has the lowest number of bureaucrats per uh, capita of any major economy. But it's also highly overregulated. There's a lot of red tape. That red tape. Uh, allows politicians, once they're in power, to sort of use their influence to uh, kind of corrupt the the system, to kind of divert benefits, to pervert the rule of law. So it's not simply about building up the state or shrinking the state. It's really about kind of doing both simultaneously but in different ways building up the core strength, the capacity, the competence of the state, while reducing the incentives to engage in kind of rent-seeking or illicit behavior. Um, And, you know, that is not something which can be done with the kind of a, a magic wand, right? I mean, this is really a generational challenge that I think Indian politicians face.
1: And how do you see this, or the findings of your book, and their significance to other parts of the world. Do you see any um relevance to countries, you know, not only in the global south, but also in the global north?
0: Uh I do. I mean, I think that the one thing I tried to show in the book is that, you know, India, in some ways, is not totally unique, right? We have seen Evidence of this nexus between criminals and politicians in a range of countries, so from Pakistan to the Philippines to the United states uh to you know parts of parts of europe now uh in many advanced industrialized democracies uh the the most overt forms of criminality in politics do seem to have been addressed, but Uh, But even today, you know, in a place like the United States, I mean, you could argue that, you know, thinking about Donald Trump in this framework is quite interesting, right? I mean, he's a kind of strong man who's not necessarily a criminal politician in the same way that I talk about in the book, but someone who uh, is coming to power with no prior track record in politics, but has uh, a reputation for getting things done, who, 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 who exploited the fact that people feel government doesn't work and remember on the campaign he had this famous line where he said I alone can fix it right put your trust in me and I will take a hammer to the system smash it up and create something better and he did that uh, successfully by uh, slicing and dicing the electorate on ethnic lines right so it was a very ethnically polarizing election where he helped gin up uh, a sense of white nationalism, of kind of demographic change, of immigration, of Muslim takeover, of Hispanic uh, immigration from the South. So I I think that this kind of framework can be used more broadly uh, across the world. Uh, I, I think one reason we see so much criminality in India is the electoral system is so competitive that... Uh, In many democracies, you see godfathers behind the scenes who may be running criminal rackets, who will back particular candidates or fund particular candidates. In India, uh, those people have decided that the landscape is so uncertain, we're just going to become the politician ourselves to minimize the uncertainty and also to increase the the amount of gains that we get. So if I'm in office, I control my destiny. I control my future. Whatever psychological or monetary or other rewards that uh, are there as a result of office, I'm going to monopolize those.
1: Right. And, and this is also something that I was... Um... It reminded me uh, much about how my my country is working right now, Hungary. We we see a lot of it in the the news. So I think we kind of covered everything that's in your book, but do you see anything that we may have left out? Do you want to point anything out?
0: I mean, I would just say that, you know, uh, the intent of the book was not to point the finger and say, oh, look at India, uh, their politicians are all corrupt, they're all criminals, but it was to try to develop a framework to make sense of what we see in a comparative way, right? And to kind of build on what other countries have experienced and what the ways out also are, that this isn't something, it's not a deterministic argument, right? It's trying to capture this this current Point in time in the historical evolution, and trying to say, you know, we can't address this issue until we really put our finger on what's behind it. And once we understand the motivations that kind of create this marketplace, then we can have a conversation about what the policy reform should be and what the solution should be. And, and I think oftentimes we we think we know what the answer is, and then we create, uh, so in the Indian context, it's there's been a lot of emphasis on information. Let's just raise voter awareness and have civic education and publicize candidates profiles in the newspapers. And that's all fine. I have nothing against that. I think that's actually a good thing to be doing. But that alone is not going to solve the issue because it's not just about information, right? It's about voters who are have a strategic rationale, strategic calculus for voting for criminal politicians, given the set of choices that they have, and they find that to be in their self-interest. And so that's really what I wanted to kind of understand in this book.
1: Um, Thank you very much um, for the book and for the um, interview. My final question is, Um, what's next? What's in the pipeline
0: for you? (laughs) Yeah, it's a great question. It's a hard question to ask. Um, You know, there's sort of three uh, pieces of work that have kind of come together that are all really about this, this question. So, uh, the first was this book trying to understand the criminal marketplace. And then I've had kind of two books, which are edited books uh, in collaboration with others, looking at both the supply and the demand side. So, with Divesh Kapoor and Pratap Banu Mehta, last year we published a volume called Rethinking Public Institutions in India, which was an attempt to understand how did India get this weak state? Why does it persist? And how does it manifest itself in a bunch of different domains? So from the judiciary to parliament to uh, the local level governments. Um, so uh, that was focusing on this the governance issue. And then this summer uh, with the Vesh Kapoor, we have a book coming out looking at uh, political finance and money in politics to try to go beyond just criminal politicians to say, what is the nature of campaign finance? How is it regulated? What are the sources of money? So candidates could be one, but businesses, the private sector could be another. Uh, what do people actually spend money on? Uh, and again, what are what are some of the reforms which should be considered if you want to try to minimize the influence of money on politics? So completely inadvertently, it was really by accident, I've kind of ended up with these kind of three Uh, bodies of work, which all are trying to speak to one thing. So once the last of these three pieces is out, I'm going to have to take some time (laughs) and think about (laughs) what the next move is. But but I think this is a really important set of interlocking debates and issues that have relevance, not just for contemporary India in 2018, but a range of democracies, both in the developed and developing worlds.
1: Well, thank you, Milan, for joining me on the New Books in South Asian Studies um, podcast. Um, I'm going to check out your other books as well, the edited volumes. And thank you to our listeners for downloading this episode. I really recommend everyone to read the book we were talking about today. If you want to know more about the role of money in Muslim Indian politics, thank you.